Michael Smolin, the founder of Dot. So just very quickly, I appreciate the chance to be. When I see all of you using video as an educational tool in some way, it just sort of cries out for me to show you what we're doing here. The video that you're all creating is in the original language it's created, mostly in this room, English. We've created a very easy browser-based tool that enables web-based uh, captioning. So this is a 47-minute video about Mohammed Yunus, the current Nobel Peace Prize winner. It was made by Ashoka. And this is available in these 75 languages. Acholi, Albanian, Arabic, Azerbaijani, etc. And this is all done by volunteers sitting at a computer typing it in. But let me just show you uh, the video that we were just talking about that was the web is on us. Someone just uploaded this video two weeks ago, RSS in plain English. RSS is a very difficult concept to understand. This has been in two weeks subtitled in these 12 languages. So here's what the video looks like in Arabic. The internet has problems. Technomati says there's over 50 million blogs, and you can see it's going up. This is overwhelming. Today's show is about a new and efficient way to keep up with all this cool stuff that's happening on the internet. So I'm going to talk about two ways that you can keep up with what's happening on the web. There's the old slow way. Boo. Then there's the has been downloaded and is rendered and embedded in over 200 global video blogs and websites. So what what we're all about is the fact that I personally started .sub at age 56 because I believe that people need to be able to communicate across cultures, and especially in the United States, there's no way that traditional media and copyright will allow all of the great stuff that's produced in other cultures of the world to be viewed in our languages, which to them is much more important than our, you know, people in the other countries watching, you know, Desperate Housewives are lost. So this is totally multilingual, and to give you an idea of, of how we're doing it, if, if you have created this video in, the video is in English, so the original language in English, but, and these are the languages, so if you just speak Arabic and you want to translate this from Arabic to Afrikaans, you go hit translate, and the transcript is available in Arabic, as you will see as soon as it loads up here. So there it is. You can translate. If your language pair is Arabic and Afrikaans, you don't need to speak any other language, and you can translate. So we've exponentially created the ability, once you go from language A to language B, then you can go from language B to any other language, and these videos are fully viewable and embeddable and scrollable across all languages. And I think for what you're doing from an educational perspective, it has you know, ramifications that we can't even think about because no one has ever thought about the possibility that something like this exists. So I just want to thank you for this. We think I, I think is something that if people understand how it's used, they can use it. And just so you know, as long as there are no commercial aspirations for the content, it is a free to use and free to embed tool. So, okay, thank you very much for the time. So uh, my name is Jeff Uboys. I'm actually here wearing uh, two hats. I work with Peter at Intelligent Television and with Nan Rubin at uh, Channel 13, where we're working on an NDIP project to uh, preserve digital public television. 
So this panel is going to go kind of from the general to the specific. I have a few fairly general observations and examples that I wanted to show, and then um, we'll go into more detail about what's going on at Channel 13. We're good. Keep an eye on the clock. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's way up at the beginning. Okay. So can you – is this – is the sound coming through okay? Um, so I want to talk about collaborative approaches to moving image archiving and the video archiving. If you look up the definition of what an archive is online, you, you end up with two, uh, two clusters of things. And one is uh, it's a place where historical documents are stored in an institution that's designed to last a long time. The other is it's a collection of Unix files. And I think that that's uh, sort of where we are in, in the archiving world. We're, we're at this um, place where um, the definitions of what we're doing are changing and shifting. The definition of what a uh, of what television is is also changing. Television is in transition and it's being redefined. So, the way it's being distributed is moving from RF to IP. The way it's being stored is moving from tape to disc. The way people are watching it is moving from scheduled to unscheduled, and from the tube in the living room to the big screen or to the small screen. Um, there are various other formatting changes that are happening from NTSC to HD, from local to global and from a broadcast mode to something that's more interactive, more like a conversation. Um, what's also happening is television's getting a memory. Um, feeling very retro today. This is the first uh, tape machine from 1956. It's a two-inch machine made by Ampex. And as television gets a memory, we're seeing that happen in lots of different places, um, ranging from projects like the American Archive that Nan will talk about to a popular form like YouTube, which Obi has been working on, to a lot of um, smaller efforts that are diverse and distributed. Uh, the University of Delaware now has a project with 10,000 local news clips that are up uh, online for viewing. And if you click a license, you can search through them and find them. Uh, the Norman Lear Center in the Midwest has a collection of local news. Uh, SCOLA has been recording 80 channels from around the world 24 hours a day. This is mainly for language education. The Television Archive in Bowie, Maryland has been recording uh, for the last seven years, material off-air. Uh, Vanderbilt, as many people know, has been going since 1968. So there's um, a lot of uh, projects that are kind of moving in parallel. There is now an opportunity for them to begin to work together, but it's not really clear what we're talking about. In a sense, are we talking about something that's corporate property that's being um, either appropriated or preserved? Are we talking about an experience that people can share with friends? Or are we talking about public memory and things that are used in, in public dialogue? And the answer to that question really, it kind of depends on who you ask. Different people have different opinions about this. Um, I tried to find some books that were you know, a counterpoint to free culture, and I couldn't really find too many books, but I did find the FBI warning, which we've all had seared on our retinas. And archives are right in the middle of this conflict over what is, uh, what is public and what is private, and uh, you know, on the one side, uh, I think to go to extremes, you see the proposal of life imprisonment for copyright violations under the new law that Alberta. Not for copyright violations, for thinking about copyright violations. Thought pride <laughs> is here. <laughs> so, um, so archives are right in the middle of this of this conflict, and it's almost uh, like a collision of two different um, systems of belief. It's it's difficult to argue with a belief system. Uh, last weekend, the New York Times ran an editorial by Michael Halpern arguing that there was no difference between tangible and intangible property. 
And you know, it's a really crude distinction to talk about market and gift economy. That's a, a fairly crude split of the kinds of transactions we engage in. But it may be one that's, that's useful, and it kind of maps to Stuart Brand's famous comment. He said that information wants to be free, and that's the part that usually gets quoted. But the second half of the sentence is information also wants to be expensive. And so we're, we're seeing a collision of these two approaches to the collection and sharing of our, of our common cultural materials. At least that's what I think of them as. This is the FBI warning that has been rewritten. It was in the presentation that uh, Peter gave, and it emphasizes that we all have uh, fair use as an option that's available to us. And I uh, personally would like to see that as, as a um, uh, more of a ethos in, in, the, uh, in the world, but it's not up to me. Um, if you talk to people that are in social science, one of the things that they'll tell you is that, that networks, the kind of networks that we're on now, lower the cost of collective action. Um, to quote another friend of mine, uh, never underestimate how much free time people have on the internet. Two examples of that. One was Parkridge 47. This was the Hillary Clinton remix of the um, Apple advertisement from 1984. A lot of people spent a lot of time finding the person who actually made this ad, and in the end of it, in the end, it turned out it was somebody that was working for uh, a contractor for the Obama campaign, and that person was fired. A second example of this fanatical devotion to provenance once a clip becomes um, widely seen is Lonely Girl 15. That was a case of something that was kind of a, almost like an astroturf campaign or fake authenticity of, of an emotional experience that a young girl was having as, as supposedly the daughter of, of Christian fundamentalist parents. Only it was bogus. Only it was bogus. Totally. So we're seeing um, online communities and archives that are built around this um, common production and collection and cataloging. I want to give some examples of that. Um, the first one is kind of a, a lesson to how much you can control information. Um, it turns out there's a community of people that really like to hang around airports. And the thing that they like to do at airports is they like to note which planes are taking off and which ones are landing and what the tail numbers of these different planes are. And they began noticing some strange patterns of behavior at airports around the world and sharing this on message boards. And um, they traced this plane uh, tail number to a front company in North Carolina, uh, which turned out to be a front company for the CIA. And it turned out that this, this plane was being used for extraordinary rendition. This was how the network of secret prisons that's being run around the world was exposed. And so here was an organization that for 60 years has perfected techniques of controlling the information that it holds. And just through a casual, an almost casual encounter with a large online community, that information became public. We see that with video, too. There was um, a project called Witness that's been alluded to here before. Grace Lyle has spoken at previous conferences that Peter and I have done. Um, and this is an archive of human rights violations. So it's an effort to share video footage of human rights uh, violations around the world. It's um, kind of like the Rodney King video all the time, only, only worse. Um, another example of collective work and collective cataloging is a project called Dabble. This is a small company in Berkeley, California. Um, at this point, they've um, gotten metadata from uh, more than, they've gotten agreements with more than 100 sites, and they have got index or index data related to over 11 million videos. So this is a giant collection of commentary and annotations and tags um, drawn from lots of video hosting sites. 
So if you think about the difficulty of cataloging and the problem of dealing with a medium that's not really well, it's opaque to computers, this approach of throwing up uh, material in front of large numbers of people who then annotate it seems like a promising thing. Um, David Rice at Democracy Now! Are you in the audience? Somewhere? David, where are you? So David's been running an interesting um, project involving lots of volunteers who have been cataloging and transcribing material from Democracy Now! Um, we just saw .sub. Um, another example of a community that's been uh, really fanatic about careful annotation of um, rich media is the Grateful Dead community um, that's up on the Internet Archive and it's involved lots of people carefully pouring over uh, shared playlists. Um, tomorrow we're going to hear from a project called Medavid. This is based at the University of Santa Cruz. It was just funded by the Sunlight Foundation. Um, Medavid has been recording material off of C-SPAN for a little over a year and they've been removing the copyrighted material, the material that belongs to C-SPAN, and taking the material that belongs to us, the material that comes off of the cameras in the house and Senate that are owned by the public, and they've begun to annotate that video with things like, um, what are the campaign contributors to someone who's speaking on the screen? And they're doing a lot of clever things. You'll hear more about it from Abram Stern tomorrow, but they're reading uh, the titling information, uh, they're, they're OCRing that titling information. They're combining it with uh, closed caption data so that you can search through it. They're pulling data from an organization called Open Secrets that has campaign contributions. Um, and they're using uh, all open software that lets you point to particular things in the closed caption stream so you can see where uh, someone has said a particular quote. And they're building this with an eye towards making it easy for people to embed particular quotes into blogs and other media, and you can imagine lots of uses for this. You can imagine the local television news stations that are hurting for content being able to find something about what their local representatives said. It's an interesting project. Um, another example of this kind of collaborative effort is LibriVox. LibriVox is um, reading uh, works of classic literature, and you can sign up, you can read a chapter, and if you want to download something, you can. So these are all examples of um, archivists working to essentially tap large pools of volunteers on the internet. And that seems like a really promising approach to lowering some of the costs that haven't been dropping. We've seen the cost of disk space go down by 98% since the Library of Congress did its report on uh, television archiving in 1997, but the cost of cataloging hasn't really started to move. Um, the other form of collaboration that uh, Peter and I have been talking about and talking about with people here and that we'd like to hear more about from people in the room is this idea of public-private partnerships. On the one hand, they seem like they can be a sustainable approach to uh, long-term access. Uh, on the other hand, some of them have been secret, some of the negotiations have been asymmetric, and it seems like there's a lot of ambivalence in the community of librarians and archivists about, about these partnerships. We don't really know what good terms are. We don't understand how the terms in these agreements are going to affect the um, possible uses of this material at some future time. So you can imagine lots of different applications for digital books, for example, and those applications may be affected by the terms and conditions that are in the agreements that are being signed. So um, Intelligent Television and OCLC, the Research Libraries Group Division of OCLC, are doing a project to look at, to look at these partnerships, and we hope to have some results to publish by the end of the summer.
So I kind of want to rush through this um, and close with some points of discussion or things that I'm curious about or things that I would like to talk with people in the room about over the course of the next day. Um, one is the effect of partnerships and restrictions on future applications for scanned materials. The second is video CMS or interfaces to video archives. It's not uh, clear what, what those should look like, what the skin to a collection of Unix files ought to look like. Um, approaches and costs for mass clearance, and finally, approaches to collaborative cataloging. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Nan Rubin, my colleague at Channel 13. Thanks, Jeff. I'm a little nervous about being the last person to speak, so I hope there'll be people talking after me on some of this stuff. We set it up that way, Nan. I know. <laughs> um, I'm Nan Rubin. I'm the project director at uh, Channel 13 for a project called Preserving Digital Public Television. And it's a project funded by the Library of Congress under a program called NDIIPP. Jeff mentioned it as NDIP. It stands for National Digital Information and Infrastructure Preservation Program. And it's actually something that uh, uh, the library uh, created coming out of some of these studies that they had done earlier um, that were mentioned before, that Jay mentioned, 94 and, uh, 1994 and 1997, on uh, what it was going to take to preserve cultural information into the future, particularly digital cultural information. And especially the report in 1997 that Mary Ide from WGBH um, and another of, a number of other people worked on, specifically looking at what it would take to preserve television once it really moved into the digital environment. Because uh, obviously in 97, uh, it was very difficult for people to even conceive of what preservation would take. But the library, Congress, you know, being the trusted repository for our cultural heritage uh, was really trying to think about that. So they had money set aside to um, uh, create some pilot projects specifically on digital preservation of born digital material. And our project was funded uh, several years ago to work particularly with born digital uh, public television productions, um, discrete programs. I'm going to talk just a little bit um, about what that is. Um, uh, our project is uh, comprised of um, three public television entities, uh, Channel 13 and WGBH. You've already heard from WGBH. Between us, our two stations are responsible for approximately 60% of the national programming schedule on public TV, the primetime, excuse me, the primetime pro programming schedule on public TV as it exists right now in the analog world. I think that'll be changing when there's the digital switchover in uh, by 09, but Right now, we, we do a lot of the national programming. We also have uh, New York University as our partner. They're uh, very well experienced in uh, developing digital libraries, and that's something public TV doesn't have any experience with, so we're very happy to be working with them. They also have a program in moving image preservation that includes film and video, and so they've been extremely uh, valuable in working with us on what it takes to work in a library and archive environment. Again, public television doesn't have much experience in that kind of a world. Um, uh, we also are working with PBS directly. PBS is the primary distributor of public television broadcast programs right now. Uh, and they don't hold the copyright. They don't do any of the production, but they do the acquisition and distribution for the programs. So most of the material that's seen on public TV right now goes to PBS and then PBS sends it out. And that's changing in a lot of different ways, but they have a collection now of virtually all of the programs that have been sent out over public TV from the 60s, 1960s, 
Some of that material gets deposited at the Library of Congress, but right now a lot of it is also sitting in a warehouse in Virginia, and they have 150,000 videotapes there. A lot of it is in two-inch format and one-inch format, and obsolete things that nobody can play back anymore um, for us to look at without a fairly expensive kind of transformation process. So we're going to be trying to come up with a plan for some of that as well. But you can see the library wants to preserve this as one of the most um, important uh, records of cultural history in the United States, and we're going to help them out if we can. Uh, our project is specifically working on born digital programs. Uh, technically, with the Library of Congress money, we can't really work directly on any of the analog stuff, but we're um, in our planning, we're encompassing all of the materials that we hold, even though our model repository is really for the born digital materials. And we are well along now. We're um, in, at the end of the third year of what was to be a three-year project. We've already had it extended for two more years, so we'll be going for a while. And uh, we are gonna, we're supposed to be designing a model repository for digital video, so that's what NYU is really helping us with. And even though you can look at the stuff that we've been looking at all day today, actually thinking about a preservation repository for digital materials is really not as simple as it sounds. There are a lot of steps that have to go through in order for us to think about um, preparing the material to put into a, a kind of preservation repository. And then, of course, the main thing is being able to retrieve it. Putting it in isn't so hard, but getting it back out again with integrity, with it being intact in the way that it was produced and reflecting the kinds of things that were put into it when it was originally um, broadcast or produced are the things that we're really working on. Uh, the challenges that we have been looking at, um, I want to say that uh, we have a website and we're putting uh, a lot of our material up there. It's a little, we're a little slow, but we're trying to be steady on it. Um, we, have a we have a very excellent report that was prepared on selection criteria because we're talking about a lot of quantity of material, not just finished programs, but all the material, or not all the material, but a great deal of material that didn't go into the programs. So that would be available possibly for non-broadcast or even just for research later. Um, and uh, so we've got a, a paper that uh, we prepared on selection. Mary was actually very instrumental in writing that. Uh, we've got a paper that we're just about ready to uh, publish on metadata. You've heard that a couple of times now. And uh, I was very heartened when uh, Murray this morning, the very first presentation, said metadata is king because we feel like it's one of the things, the term is getting to be a little overused, but it's really crucial to being able to retrieve digital files. Digital files are useless if they don't have the labels, and the labels are in the metadata. Um, we also have a paper on file formats. And I'm not sure that people understand in the production of uh, broadcast video, we probably, I haven't counted them up, we probably go through, I don't know, help me Mary or Karen, uh, we could easily have like 50 different file formats that the programs, the program material, the audio, the animations, the text, et cetera, get, when they're getting uh, moved back and forth between one editing system to another editing system to something that puts them on a file format and kicks them back out for some other use and moves them around to another place. There's a lot of file formats that are used there. And there's a lot of information that gets put into them and stripped out and put in again. And in order for us to be successful with the preservation aspects, We've got to be mindful of all those and try and protect that information as much as possible. And this, of course, is where the whole idea of standards comes in. 
and also streamlining the production process. Um, so we're, we're working on publishing our analysis of what it takes to actually produce a television program as it's done right now for broadcast um, and what it's going to take for us to distribute that program in a digital form and to preserve that program in a digital form. We're looking at one of the major technical problems is a file wrapper, which is uh, what it's going to take for us to package the essence, which is the actual moving image material, with the metadata in some kind of a format so that we can put it in a repository and repeat it. That's why our uh, paper on file formats and metadata, we're going to try to uh, mash them up together um, to actually uh, move forward on that. We thought that other uh, TV producers would be working on the problem of, file, of the file wrapper. And so we went around and talked to the networks, et cetera. Nobody was doing it. We actually uh, found that we were kind of out there by ourselves. So we organized uh, a meeting with the support of the Library of Congress a year ago, and we invited a lot of people working on file format, particularly video file format issues, to talk to us about wrappers. And um, uh, we also uh, asked for the help of PBS, which was developing its own kind of a wrapper. And we found that everyone said, oh, we'll work with you or we'll follow you. So instead of us being able to kind of do follow along with what was being developed in the commercial world, we were finding that the commercial folks were ready to follow us. So uh, two things have developed out of that. One is that PBS is actually developing an MXF profile for video files for use for distribution uh, that's going to be specifically oriented for public television because we were finding with all of the so-called uh, um, uh, uh, definition of MXF being so flexible and all of that, that in fact some of the uh, mechanisms that were playing back our files were stripping out the closed captioning. Obviously not a good thing. So we needed to protect that. We needed to protect some of the information. We're coming up with our own profile for MXF which we hope will then be adopted as a standard. Um, and that will help us greatly with the interoperability. We also have recently um, joined up with Turner Broadcasting, Discovery, and some of the other cable broadcast networks to work collectively on a, a, a wrapper that we'd be able to use through the production format that, again, we hope would be adopted as a standard within television so that uh, we'll all be able to use the same material, we get the vendors to promise that they'll be able to, that they will in fact play back whatever we give them. Um, and uh, one other thing that we're working on now is that we're starting to archive all the websites in public television. This is something very recent that we're doing um, in cooperation with the Internet Archive. Uh, we felt that with all of the um, companion websites that were developed for public TV, and now that we're seeing a lot of public TV developing out of the websites, <laughs> that we should be capturing those things and also putting them into some kind of a preservation environment or at least storing them in a way that we have a historical record of these things, um, particularly because people seeing the TV programs at some point will also want to know what was online in connect connection with these things. So we're just starting to do this and we're actually very excited about it um, and uh, hopefully we'll have something uh, to be able to show people soon where they want to start looking at the history. Doing it now, you know, we won't have too much history, but we do it over a period of time, we know that it will be there. Um, a new development which has come out of um, all of these various efforts um, 
with us, with our partners within NDIP, and also we have a group of fellow travelers, st people from a bunch of other public television stations and uh, independent producers, is this concept of the American Archive, which was mentioned earlier this morning that Sue Kantowitz from DBH brought up. The American Archive is actually a very new development, and it's partially the inspiration of the British Creative Archive. It's partially coming out of some of the work that's been done within public broadcasting by the, C the Corporation for Public Broadcasting organized a digital rights working group basically to say what do we do to start managing our material in a way that we can make it accessible to the public. Um, also the development of uh, a standard for uh, providing descriptive metadata called PB Core, which is based on the library standard called Dublin Core, and it's an expansion of that. Um, that's been in the works for a couple of years. It was finally released, and now we're trying to encourage TV stations around the country to use it because it's a standard. The MIC uh, website will map to PB Core, and it's something that we feel like is really important. That's out there now. Um, and something that's also very important, which is also fairly recent, is the extension of the public broadcasting distribution system, which has been uh, a kind of one point to many system uh, up until recently um, in the analog design and is now in the process of being transformed into a digital distribution system which will be based on very broadband um, access to program files and uh, will be not just one point to uh, many but also will involve peer-to-peer -peer distribution. And that's in the process of being planned and we found that uh, in looking at the existing infrastructure in public broadcasting, which we have extensive infrastructure nationally, which is all being transformed into digital infrastructure, that we could include a preservation element in that as well. So that in addition to having programs available for playout, for public playout over broadcasting, that we could capture some of that and be able to store it for long-term uh, preservation as well. And um, that, that we can use the existing system to plan how that would work. And the American Archive is based in part on taking advantage of that digital infrastructure that's being put in place and in large part also on, of course, the growing interest on having these access to these materials that people have on their shelves that all of a sudden is a hot commodity. Old TV, it's a hot commodity. And not only do we have the 150,000 national programs that PBS has on their shelves, every local station has their own local programs on the shelves that are historical documents that are really important. So the American Archive, if we're successful, will be able to begin making some of these materials available. And the focus of a lot of that is educational access. Um, we prepared uh, a little promo reel to sell this idea when, we, when it was first brought to Congress a couple of weeks ago, um, actually a couple of months ago, and I thought we could show that to you now. Don't turn the lights out. But uh, you got to see a little bit of old uh, British film a few minutes ago. Now you can get to see some old U.S. television. Back I in 1952, the, the regents of the University of Wisconsin called for the establishment of a television laboratory and the beginning of a new and wonderful element in the cultural life of our city. Tonight you join me in being present at the birth of a great adventure. If newness be its vice, then boldness be its virtue. Let's look in the window. Who's in, who's in here anyhow? Peek in the window. It's you. I like. One day saw the Beatles. Ah, like that. 
Welcome to the French Chef. I'm Julia Child. National Educational Television presents the WGBH-TV production, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, Prospects of Mankind. Mr. President, you're very kind indeed. future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint. vote for something stronger than that that would have meaning to all these people who've been sitting here? What percentage of the plainclothesmen assigned to the division, to the 6th Division at that time, do you feel participated in the PAD? Everyone to my knowledge. Everyone? Everyone. got the interest bills, the diesel tax, the SEMTA tax, and uh, auto emissions. It'll be a busy afternoon. Every time you hear us say the two words, all seven, you respond with, Talaga! Where in the world is... Cartman, San Diego. The Cyber Squad is back in business.
That's our propaganda piece <laughs> for trying to express the importance of us um, preserving this material and making it accessible to people. Though we have a lot of problems to overcome in order to really do this, um, obviously we've talked about a, a few of them, or you've heard about a few of them, the rights clearances, uh, being able to go back and actually uh, get adequate cataloging on a lot of this material, the technical remastering of the old stuff, um, which can be quite costly, um, and uh, some kind of real access mechanism so that there'll be an interface that people will be able to use. But these are all things that um, we think we'll be getting support from the Pu Corporation for Public Broadcasting to begin planning, and we'll have a lot of support throughout the public broadcasting system, both television and radio, to start working on this kind of a project. Yeah.